Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Wonderful to see you and be here with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a great session today. Uh, debate number 23 out of 40, the 40 greatest debates in Jewish history. And today is no exception, prioritizing the poor, prioritizing the poor versus equity toward all parties. I have a very short presentation today, giving us more opportunity for conversation. And I'd love to start with a little poll. And I'd love to start with a little poll here. What are we most obligated to? One, I am most obligated to almost always support the most disadvantaged. Option two, if all else is equal, then I lean towards supporting the most disadvantaged. Or three, I'm most obligated to defend truth, whether that supports the most poor or the most rich. Okay, so I know those uh, are hard to choose from, uh, but let's see where that falls out for you. Take a moment here. Okay, let's see the results. Okay, we have an interesting mix here. 14% most obligated to support, support the most disadvantaged. 43%, if all else is equal, then I lean towards supporting the most disadvantaged in justice cases. And 43%, I'm most obligated to defend truth, whether that supports, supports the, mo the more rich or the more poor. Very interesting. Okay, friends, this will be a rich debate today. As I said, it's a shorter presentation with more opportunity for conversation today. So here we go. On the one hand, we need to be fair to all parties in a conflict. On the other hand, we know there are times when we are called to morally prioritize the most vulnerable. In Jewish law, we are told that it is unjust to be biased and be swayed by poverty to favor the case of the poor over the rich, and certainly not that of the rich over the poor in a dispute. Within the realm of a formal court's judgment, this is crucial, as we learn from Exodus 23, verses 3 and 6. However, does this notion apply in other contexts, and does it still apply today 
where the disparity of wealth between the poor and the rich has become so large that the poor often can no longer properly advocate for themselves. The rabbis taught in some cases, we should indeed prioritize the more vulnerable party over whoever may be right. So here's a fascinating, one of my favorite Talmudic passages from Baba Metziah 83a, and here's what it says. Some porters negligently broke a barrel of wine belonging to Rabbah, son of Rav Chuna. Therefore, he seized their garments. So they went and complained to Rav. Return them their garments, he ordered. Is that the law? Rabbah inquired. Even so, he rejoined, thou should walk in the way of good men. Their garments having been returned, they observed, we are poor men, have worked all day and are in need. Are we to get nothing? Go and pay them, he ordered. Is that the law, he asked? Even so, was his reply, and keep the path of the righteous. Very interesting, friends. So just to recap what we said here. Basically, there's a conflict between the employer and the employees. And in both cases, they go to the rabbi to resolve the conflict. And in both cases, the rabbi favors the workers, the workers over the employer, giving quotes from Mishle, from Proverbs. So interesting enough, if it was truly the law, as he says it is, we would expect him to have, have quoted a very specific verse from the Torah. Instead, we see vague, broad verses that are quoted from the book of Mishle, from Proverbs. This perhaps implies that the proper way to determine an appropriate mode of conduct may actually be lifnei mishuratadin, above the letter of the law. Again, had it been the law, he would have quoted from the Torah. But instead, he quotes from Proverbs as an abstract ethical principle, implying it's beyond the letter of the law. So beyond the specific mitzvot, we are called upon to be righteous in all ways possible. Here for Rav, that means prioritizing the vulnerable over the more powerful, regardless of who is technically more correct, regardless of who would win in a court of law. So friends, this notion of equality before the law is often a fallacy in today's America, since the poor have a more serious disadvantage in the courtroom. So many people without resources find themselves litigating cases, whether civil or criminal, in situations that put them up against resource-heavy individuals, corporations, and government entities. In too many cases, people with meritorious positions find themselves losing or just giving up because their relative poverty allows them to be ground down by their opponents and by the system. Every individual, of course, should have the same fair opportunity before the law, as we must be committed to truth and justice. But this is too often not the reality today. Even if it were true, Judaism teaches that we should act above or beyond, literally, within the letter of the law to support the most vulnerable. Indeed, we learn that God created and destroyed many worlds that were built upon the foundation of din, of judgment. 
And then God finally created this world built upon rachamim, on mercy. Our world cannot exist on pure judgment. Rather, as fallible beings, we rely upon the grace, empathy, and kindness of God and humanity. Friends, just internalize that for a moment, that God created many worlds, our, our tradition teaches, and had to destroy those worlds. Because if those worlds were created on truth and absolute justice, they couldn't sustain, given how fallible human beings are. And so this world is built not on truth and justice, ultimately, but on mercy, on rachamim, on gentle kindness. In turn, as humans created in the image of God, we should act with grace, empathy, and kindness towards others. In the Shirat Hayam, Song of the Sea, sung by Moshe and the Israelites upon safely crossing the Red Sea, Moshe praises God with the words, Zekeli ve'anvehu, this is my God and I will glorify God. The Talmud explains that one way to glorify God is to emulate divine behavior. Just as the divine is merciful, so must you be merciful, right? To be like God as an ethical mandate is to be, is to create a world of gentle, loving kindness. We must be moved toward mercy for those who are suffering. And this must affect how we build society. Former President Obama explained the importance of empathy and jurisprudence when choosing Supreme Court justices. Quote, I will seek someone who understands that justice isn't only about some abstract legal theory or footnote in a case book. It is also about how our laws affect the daily realities of people's lives. I view the quality of empathy of understanding and identifying with people's hopes and struggles as an essential ingredient for arriving at just decisions and outcomes, end quote. Law is not only about principle, as many argue, it is also about life. Law is not a mathematical calculation. It must include the subjective elements involved as well. In a recent book called Noise, the authors explain, explain just how wildly different results emerge in different courtrooms with very similar cases. There's too much subjectivity and room for noise to color fair results. On the other hand, we don't want non-human algorithms to resolve matters in our justice systems. How can we find the right balance to objectivity and subjectivity to formalism and empathy. Outside of the courtroom, within the realm of Jewish grassroots activism, we learn that our primary responsibility may not only be to equality, but at times to prioritize our support for the vulnerable. After all, numerous Jewish teachings remind us that our primary responsibility is to protect and prioritize the most vulnerable individuals and parties. As it says in Ecclesiastes and Kohelet, God takes the side of the aggrieved and the victim. When there is conflict, God simply cannot withhold support for the one suffering. Rav Aaron Soloveitchik writes, a Jew should always identify with the cause of defending the aggrieved, whosoever the aggrieved may be. Just as the concept of tzedek is to be applied uniformly to all humans regardless of race or creed. 
Seeking to put this perspective into practice, Rev. Aron was also a strong supporter of the civil rights movement during the 60s. This is what it means to be Jewish, to prioritize the suffering in conflict. This point is made time and time again by the rabbis. The Talmud, based on the verse, justice, justice, you shall pursue, teaches that the disadvantage should be given preference when all else is equal. The Rambam teaches that even if the disadvantage arrived before the judges later than the others, they should be given precedence. Thus, in a court of law, all parties are ideally treated equally as we are guided by the Jewish value of din, of fair justice. Today, however, justice, unfortunately, does not always seem to prevail. Perhaps we can find a legitimate way to tip the scales in, a big, in big picture terms by seeing that in activism, we can favor the vulnerable guided by the Jewish value of chesed, empathy, loving kindness, and in life, we must learn to balance all of our values, love, justice, mercy, etc. In justice, we do not just choose only one guiding principle. As the 20th century British philosopher Isaiah Berlin teaches, moral life consists of embracing a plurality of values. We must always be absolutely committed to the truth and be sure that our justice system is fair for all parties. Yet we also, as change makers, have a special and holy role to give voice to the voiceless and to support the unsupported in society. This is the role of Jewish activism. The rabbis teach in Yalkut Shimoni that even if a righteous person attacks a wicked person, God still sides with the victim. All people deserve our love and care, but we must follow the path of God and make our allegiances clear. We stand with the destitute, oppressed, alienated, and suffering. So on the one hand, we know we must prioritize the most vulnerable. On the other hand, as we learn from the verse in Exodus, we must be fair to all parties and not pervert justice by merely siding with the most vulnerable in every conflict. I would suggest this distinction emerges when considering how we relate to others in the societal realm relative to the way we treat others in the personal realm. In the societal realm, all parties should be treated equally in matters of justice. In the personal realm, we can sensitize others to the opportunity to go above the letter of the law in how we treat those more vulnerable than ourselves. It would not be fair to prioritize a black person over a white person in court simply because the black person is statistically more likely to be poor and marginalized. On the other hand, we cannot ignore that courtroom bias is likely to lead to a better outcome for a white person. It would not be fair to support a claim from a Palestinian Muslim blindly over a claim for an Israeli Jew simply because the Palestinian individual is likely to be less privileged than an Israeli. On the other hand, we cannot ignore the Jewish bias that we as Jews might automatically believe the Israeli and discredit the Palestinian. It would not be fair to blindly believe the union over the corporate owners just because the workers make a lot less money than the owners. On the other hand, we know that without collective organizing, workers historically have been taken advantage of by wealthier individuals. These are messy matters. 
we must, to conclude, we must listen to the most vulnerable and we must also seek truth and justice. To do so, we must be introspective in recognizing and considering our biases and must hold ourselves and others accountable to the highest levels of truth and justice. Okay, friends, I'm gonna pause there and I would love to hear from you on this big topic of prioritizing the poor versus equity toward all parties. Lauren Blatt, I see your hand is up. Yeah, um, actually I think your last words sum it up, equity. Because if you look at equity and equality, equality is sort of a, it's a false goal. I mean, it would be like, you know, giving pregnancy leave to everybody or not giving it at all because men don't become pregnant. I don't know if that's a good example, but, but equity is important. And I think also when we take into consideration laws that deal with the vulnerable, we also have to kind of make even the playing field so that, you know, I think of First Nations in Canada, whose way of life is completely destroyed. There's no going back, but we have to find a way to level the playing field for them so that they retain their dignity and can go on with life as best as they can according to their ideals. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, those are some important points there. You know, and friends, one of the things I love to do, and then I see Matthew's hand is up, we'll go to him next, is to remember, we don't just live in our time. We don't just live in our time as Jews, right? We don't just live in America or Canada or in Israel in October 26, 2021, right? As Jews, we transcend time. We live together in third century Babylonia. We live together in Egypt of the 11th century. We live together in Spot in the 16th century. We live together in Germany of the 17th century. We live in, in the 25th century, the 25th century on Mars. I don't know about Mars. <laughs> wherever people are gonna live in the 25th century, probably not this planet, unfortunately, but wherever they're gonna live. As Jews, we transcend time. And one of the reasons I say that is that it's too easy to view the question of justice from a lens of today. Where do we stand with full rights as Jews living in America or in Canada or in Israel with sovereignty? And we should remember, what was it like to be a second-class citizen at best if you were a Jew living in Egypt in the 11th century, right? If you were living in, um, in, uh, in Poland in the 18th century, right? If you lived under the Romans or the Greeks, right? What was it like? And so how did we imagine Jews might get a fair trial, a fair trial where Jews were not full, for, you know, full citizens, when Jews were not treated equally? And even today, Jews living in many countries around the world, uh, unlike here in North America, where there will be a heavy bias against Jews. And so on the one hand, we might think of ourselves as the powerful ones, American Jews, by and large, are doing pretty well, although you may have seen the new studies that were released today that showed that 40% of American Jews over the last year changed their, their behavior because of anti-Semitism. The way they behaved in society, they, they changed because of rising anti-Semitism. Um, one out of three college students, at least, um, demonstrated that they had fears of anti-Semitism on, on campus over the last year. And so yes, American Jews are by and large uh, safe and powerful and privileged in many ways, 
and yet there are rising threats. And so we have to think about this question within our own time where we trust the courts and also in other time periods where we don't trust courts. Yes, Matthew. I was gonna say COVID has accelerated some of these questions. And it's not a very simple issue or question. And I refer to the fact that people, for example, could not pay their rent. So the federal and state governments said there is a moratorium on paying rent. But there was no moratorium on landlords, be they corporation REITs with billions of dollars or someone who owns a four family home paying their taxes, their heat, their insurance and other things. And how do you weigh in a case where a large REIT can say, we don't care, we borrow money at 1% and we're raising everyone's rents in Phoenix, 30%. You don't like it, move out. Versus a small landlord who owns a 20 or 30 unit apartment complex where 60% of the people, his tenants didn't pay anything. And now this county is foreclosing for failure to pay real estate taxes. So I think we have to look at these issues through multiple prisms and lenses, the way I put it. Matthew, that's a perfect example. So how would you address, how would you address that crisis? I don't know the answer. For example, uh, I worked in New York for many years in real estate. We were third party managers. And one of the properties that we managed was a very high-end co-op. High end is an understatement. There are 105 apartments and 25 employees. God forbid you don't have an in-house paint there if there's a scuff mark on the hallway. Well, none of the commercial tenants paid rent last year because of COVID-19. And as wealthy as these people were, everyone had to pay 25% more in their monthly charges. And how do you deal with the elderly retiree widows and widowers who have $3 million apartments, but their income isn't great versus the Wall Street hedge fund person who has ample funds. In this particular case, the board dipped into reserves and borrowed money to not raise the maintenance the necessary amount. The downside though is they're now, and I've been doing some consulting for this former New York employer on this particular building. They have decided they can no longer afford to have the payroll they have with someone pushing the button in the automatic elevator, because God forbid you should have to touch anything. They're gonna lay off four full-time employees in the next six months. I don't know where equity comes in, in these very diverse issues. Here, you could say, oh, Mrs. Smith can clearly afford it. Mrs. Smith is someone I actually know. She was a friend of my parents. She's in her late 90s. She doesn't have that kind of income to afford 20 or 30, you force her to sell her apartment that she's lived in for 50 years. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah. 
other than to say there is no simple answer in these cases. What is society's obligation? Well, the federal government gave the state of Arizona hundreds of millions of dollars to give to tenants, to give to landlords. And the state of Arizona hasn't given virtually none of it out. So I just don't know the answer on a micro level, you do what you can, but on a macro level, I don't know where you are. Beautiful. I, I'm Matthew, I'm so, I'm so glad you brought up the case. It was actually, a, that was a, exactly a case I was thinking of throughout this session. And I think what Matthew just made the case for so um, uh, articulately is really a case against hard ideology. Hard ideology is the death of thought. It basically says, no matter what the details are, here is my ideology I'll impose around, upon any political, economic, social dilemma. And I think what Judaism tries to do is push us post-ideology. Yes, of course, we can never fully separate from ideologies, but basically says, think, look at all the details. Think about all the parties. Think about the outcomes of choices that will be made. Because you're right, if you call for a moratorium to paying all rent, and then you don't have the big banks you know, involved, then what happens to property owners? That this is their livelihood, you know, that, that basically have to go under because they're not receiving any rent. We have to think about all parties. And so, um, or here's another case. If you take, because we live in such binaries today, if you take the ex- extreme fringes of the, of the Blue Lives Matter movement and the, and the extreme fringes of the Black Lives Matter movement, where the former is basically racist, uh, denying that um, there's any brutality at all towards people of color, and the latter is, um, is rapidly anti-cop, that you can't possibly be a cop and be a decent human being, and you take extreme measures like that, and you find um, a total disregard of any facts regard in, in messy situations of how do you police a society. Or you take a case um, that in postmodern philosophy, the postmodernists argue, uh, perhaps cynically, that every new form of progress leads to a new form of oppression. Okay, great. So you just solved the crisis for people who don't have to pay rent you know, during COVID. But now you created a new problem for a whole other group of people unfairly. And so how do you actually come to just conclusions that, um, that are fair to all parties? And this is uh, incredibly complicated. Yeah, Matthew, you wanna, you wanna jump back in? Well, there is no solution to any of these issues that doesn't hurt or harm right. someone. If you accept that as a given, then the question becomes, how do you help the people who in a sense are collateral damage to a greater societal good? And that is the safety net that's missing. So if everyone gets an electric car and the gasoline stations all go out of business for a climate perspective, that might be good, but they are collateral damage to what we seem to believe is a step forward for all of society. How do you address the collateral damage? Right. Great, great. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a great question. Just before we go to Eileen. And so this comes up all over the place. Literally almost every issue intersects with this. Take the case of like taxing the most rich, right? According to some, 
um, of, of those most rich, they would argue, oh, this is, this is um, unfair. I made this money. I shouldn't be taxed extra because I'm more rich. According to others, this is fair because the society as it's structured enabled them to become most rich. Take the case of refugees. Some would say, oh, this is unfair that refugees come here and we have to pay for them you know, in the resettlement process. Others would say, this is fair. This is what this country is built on. We all, to some degree, or many communities, immigrants um, and, or refugees. And so um, to Matthew's point about collateral damage, and yeah, and the environmental movement is another great example of, of industries that get put out of business or take some, in some cases, um, um, businesses, if you raise wages, if you raise the minimum wage, some businesses, it won't affect it really won't affect their ability to be profitable by and large. In other cases, take something like a restaurant industry where the margins are so small, it can have a big impact on, on, on such an industry. So what do we do with the collateral damage and who's responsible to absorb it? And I think that one of the roles of government may be to absorb so that no individual parties unfairly um, are hit with collateral damage. How is there a buffer that kind of provides some protection to vulnerable parties on all sides um, that when major shifts happen, there is some um, landing spot for them. Um, there, there's a safe landing spot. Yes, Eileen, why don't you jump in here? You're still on mute. You're on mute, Eileen. I go. just saw that. Um, it seems to me in regard to the real estate and the tenant situation, like so many things, they never thought through all of the ramifications and consequences. So I would say, sure, give the tenants a sabbatical, but conversely, give the small landlords who don't have access to loans and don't have access to Wall Street money, give them some type of amelioration so they are not foreclosed on because it's not their fault. Right. There was no parachute to save them. Yeah. So let me, let me ask a question. How do you define the word small? And therein lies, I'll give you a better example. Everyone is in favor of doing the climate electric cars. What do we do when so many people drive electric cars and they don't buy gas and the gas tax revenue goes down and we can't repair the roads? They're addressing this now in Sweden and Norway, where all of a sudden so many people have electric cars, which weigh more than regular cars, don't pay gas tax, and there isn't enough money to repair the roads. And people have to think, COVID, I'll say, was the exception. You had to act, and there was collateral damage. But how do you think 510, as Rabbi Shmuley said, 500 years out when we're living someplace, how do you think about the future? And you can't, and at some point, if you think too much, you take no action. As Heschel said, you pray with your feet, you have to move. 
Yes, I, I, I really, uh, just before we go back to you, Eileen, um, I, I really think that this is one of the great challenges of moral leadership and one of the great exercises of, of, of Talmudic moral reasoning, which is to say, we have to be aware of the collateral damage that emerges with every moral choice. There's virtually no moral choice that doesn't have collateral damage. And that also is opportunity cost. If I choose to donate um, $10,000 this year or whatever 10% of someone's income is, you know, in choosing to donate that, um, I'm also aware that I chose not to donate to that, that other option as well, right? And so every choice um, has other choices that were, were, were available and some choices themselves create damage. Even when we're curing, we are damaging. And so one of these things that they're debating now in vaccination is, um, okay, who should get the booster shot? And, what, and when should young children get a shot? And how do we weigh up the risks um, versus the potential rewards? And at what point do we say that this will offer more protection than, than um, the potential damage to a small group? They say, look, the collateral damage is gonna be minuscule. The risk is incredibly minuscule. And yet those people are the collateral damage to the, the solution. And it's the right solution that they, that they should be vaccinated because it's gonna protect far more people. But nonetheless, there's always collateral damage. The people that the vaccination will create harm for or will not, you know, um, again, a very, a very small population. Nonetheless, it's there. And so, um, yeah, and I think Matthew brings up an important case there in regards to roads and to gas. Yes, Eileen, to you, and then, uh, and then, and then we're back to Scott. And then Scott is going to be up. Yeah. Okay. So I. Uh, okay, I'm not muted, right? Right. Okay. So I think we need to look and say that gas stations are going to morph. They're going to become electric power stations for cars. And in terms of supporting the roads, you buy an electric car and that information goes to the State Department of Motor Vehicles and you have a tax for road usage. I mean, all of these things can be done and it's not really, I think, that difficult a problem. It's just that we have to think outside the box. Okay, great. We have to think outside the box and um, minimize the risks and the damages involved and work towards solutions that aren't pure ideolo ideological. Okay, Scott, over to you. Thanks, Eileen. So this may be a um, unfair question. You know, conservatives like to ask about a riddle intent. Um, you started off with Exodus, uh, I believe it's Exodus 23 and that was sort of reference for maybe the um, equity toward all parties school of thought as I understood it. What, what do you think was the original intent of that? Like, where did that come from? Like, what, what might have been going on in the culture at the time that, that made that the law, I guess? Amazing, amazing questions. Good, I'm gonna post that in, post that in the side over there. Uh, that that particular part, Exodus 23.3, do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit, it says over there. And then um, it says, it says uh, in Exodus 23.6, let me just grab that Hebrew there also. Um, in 23.6, it says, 
Lo mishpat You shall not subvert the rights of your needy in their disputes. Um, so those are worth looking at inside and looking at the commentaries there. Um, and um, uh, and this, this is an incredible thing. This is before our system today of very expensive attorneys um, where, and that's not a critique of attorneys, uh, you know, um, but, you know, expensive costs involves with um, attorneys and those who don't have access to that. And our understanding that just as the politician who has raised more money for their race is more likely to win statistically than someone who raises less, so too in a courtroom, one who is able to spend more on a defense is more likely to win. Um, but that's not the reality in that time, as you correctly point to, Scott. I think I think that part of what they're looking at is, is the potential for bribes. I think the, the potential for bribes um, that were involved in justice, historic, justice systems historically, that the rich could basically directly or indirectly buy themselves out of, out of legal problems. Um, so that, that's one factor. And who is likely to be a judge in such a case? Someone who is in the same social network um, and friend network as someone who is, um, who, who is, who is wealthier. Um, and let me say another thing. There's also a historical bias that the rich are wiser. You, if you are rich, you are successful, you are smart. If you are poor, it's your fault, right? You, um, you are not educated, you're just you know, uh, a shoemaker, you, know, you don't even know how to read. And so you don't understand the justice system, you don't know right and wrong, like we can't trust that. Now we know Plato was wrong. Plato thought those who know the good will do the good. That's of course incorrect. If you have an Ivy League degree versus a community college degree, you're not more likely to be more virtuous, right? Um, and so virtue is not connected to levels of education, um, even though education, of course, is incredibly important towards being a virtuous person. Uh, it, it is not directly correlated, is my understanding. And so, um, but that bias, especially in ancient times, was all the more true, where there was an es essentialist philosophy. People's, people had different essences, like a caste system. Plato had a caste system. Obviously, the Hindus had a caste system. And in ancient society as well, there were the priests, there were the rabbis, there were the farmers, right? There, was, there were different classes of people. And we can trust different classes of people differently. And to be honest, most of us hold this today as well. Um, when I meet someone who, um, you know, has a similar uh, career or a similar social network, or a similar educational experience, I tend to trust that we operate in the same moral framework, um, as opposed to someone I meet who, um, you know, didn't finish high school or lives in a very different socioeconomic status. I think, oh, maybe we operate in different orbits. And so that's an interesting challenge in terms of who we trust and how our systems of justice work. Scott, did I did I touch on your question? Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, that yeah. is interesting to think about. And like, I do. I'm sorry. Just, this today as an interesting observation. Yeah, and we think, see, here's the interesting thing. I, I, one of my beliefs is that ancient structures never go away. They just look different. And so we called it a caste system and we think we've kind of moved beyond a caste system. But in different ways, we still have these classes that we operate within um, in terms of who's acceptable to marry, who's acceptable to, to have dinner with, who you would hire and not hire. Um, some people, of course, work to transcend such things. Um, 
but we are so hardwired towards towards these issues. You know, it's like Plato talks about how um, a dog will bark at someone, and once that person is familiar in their smell, the dog won't bark at them, yes. regardless of whether that person is safe or not safe. Familiarity changes our sense of risk. The people we surround ourselves with, the more are people we will we will feel uh, less of a need to bark at. And so, by the way, another case to touch on here, and I want to move to other other people's comments, is um, divorce. How do we think about divorce? Many of you perhaps have been in um, divorce uh, divorce uh, settlings, and um, and know the biases involved there. In some cases, uh, uh, historically, a bias towards the man, and and more in, in cases today, in many cases, a bias towards the woman. Um, but um, different biases involved in divorce uh, uh, cases, and and how to think about um, what is just there. Who's who's at fault for the divorce, and should who's at fault for the divorce be in any way a part of 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 of, of the result in court? Who is more likely to make more money once they're out of the out of the marriage? Um, you know, how should that way? And who has you know? So all these factors in terms of these cases are incredibly complex. Let me raise one other question before we move to our next person here. And it's a personal one. I have to be a judge every day because my youngest son, my youngest son is oftentimes the one to provoke my older son. He jumps on top of his back and he goes inside of his shirt and he lays on, and he's not trying to hurt him. He's not trying to be mean, but he wants to provoke him. He wants to engage him um, to make an activity out of this. And who do I support? The more vulnerable one, the three-year-old, or the one who's less at fault, the seven-year-old, right? And how do I think about my role as a judge in such a case where it's clear who the, uh, the um, you know, I, I, I would never call one of my sons a perpetrator. Um, it's clear who the one who is the instigator of the, of the family conflict is. And yet it's also clear what the motives are involved and who should be able to rise above this conflict and who should not. And so whose side do I take in this? You know, and we also know from the Torah, if not from our own lives, that taking sides is also a big parental problem in terms of who we choose. So maybe one of you will um, will share some wisdom on that. Yes, Pam. So um, to go back to the class system. So my parents are from India and they actually grew up in that. And the funny thing of you saying that you tend to judge sometimes based on education or what people's level and Eileen brought up maybe not the best way. I was never raised that way. So like we've traveled all over the world. I was always told to notice the woman cleaning our hotel room in my previous position, um, which was at a cooperative slash corporate structure. The cleaning lady was a friend of mine because she chatted with me. I was often there at the end of the day. And when she passed her immigration test, I got a little post-it note saying, hey, like I passed and that's now in my fridge. So I think it has something to do with your upbringing as well and being made sure to notice people at all levels. My best friend never went to college, but I got a master's degree and, you know, she worked a job longer than I did while I, I moved to different situations. So even the other day, the Starbucks woman told me that she had had friends and family pass recently when I asked how she was doing. And, and she always checks in to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm taking time for God and with family. And so I think you can find a way to do that and, and cross that divide, but it really comes from your upbringing. And that's what my parents always told me. I had a lot of advantages, but I was told not to ignore anyone anywhere. Pam, what a great comment. And, and I, if I can ask you, 
how much do you think your, uh, what you're sharing is based upon your upbringing and how much, if at all, is it about having been raised in a Sikh Indian family as opposed to a Hindu, um, a Hindu Indian family? Is, meaning is Sikh culture ha have a difference on the caste system than Hindu in Indian culture? So yes, culturally the caste system is a little different, but not in the sense of those who are rich and those who are not. I mean, um, my family's from military and business background. My mom was old money. My dad was a farmer. He married up. So, you know, there are a lot of ways where that could not have worked out. And when you go back, yes, there's still certain um, levels of, you know, like we don't go to the slums. I go to the nice neighborhoods and I go to the 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 well-to-do areas and the touristy parts and, and they shelter me from some of that so the caste system is very real and even within I think seeking from the communities there's a huge difference um, and in Sikh communities it would be like you know who whose family is a doctor and who has this and that like it still exists to some degree um, but I think it depends. It's also my upbringing here. So being an immigrant and I'm having to work really hard and exposes to multiple different cultures and, and having to be a minority and like understanding that we had to make our way by being accepted by others and accepting others. Awesome, Pam. Thanks so much. Awesome. Okay, who else do we not hear from yet? Who wants to jump in? Michael. I think too, and one thing I'm thinking about this is these are questions at many different levels. We have the legal and, and from the political. We have the religious and it comes down then to the individual level. Because first of all, the request that we get support that would be good and positive by death are unlimited. We, we get easily for, for, for very positive things give away our wealth multiple times. And how do we prioritize we prioritize? So I think we need each individual think through what is our value system as it fits in to the culture that we're in, that the religion that we follow by, by what we want to see political. And, and that's what I think it, it comes down to. And I think discussions like this and our environment and communities, both religious and not, can give us a basis for us to evaluate and think where, where we want our impact or lack of impact to go. Amazing, amazing, Michael. Thank you so much for that. And, and that's a great challenge for all of us to engage in that work and that reflective uh, values clarification. Amazing, thank you so much. Who else have we not heard from here? Eric, Craig, Steve. So I have a question. Um, okay. In the, if you have a justice system and it seems like part of this question is we're trying to define what do we mean by justice? What is justice? And in that process, if we've got a system that is weighted to the wealthy and the powerful, uh, you know, can you get to truth in that system? If you are not getting to true justice, if it's out of balance and out of whack, can, can, can you get to truth? And is truth the purpose of justice? Is that where we're going? Is that what we want from this? Or are we just trying to balance the scales a little bit, you know, help, help, help them? How much is, is a fraction of justice gonna be acceptable to get us by? So 
Yeah. I think that's what this has brought up for me. Right. Okay. Awesome. Yehuda, thank you for that. Those are profound questions. What form of justice? As we know, there are dozens of kinds of systems of justice um, historically and even today. Um, and what do we even mean by that? Getting clarification. And do we want little changes in the system or large ones? And as Michael says, is truth relative or absolute? What are we ultimately trying to uh, trying to get at here? And is it even achievable? Um, and so uh, I think that's that's that that's a fantastic question to raise. And when we move beyond the courtroom into distributive justice, meaning sometimes we talk about social justice, we talk about economic justice or distributive justice, we talk about retributive justice, we talk about criminal justice. Um, you know, we talk about. Um, uh, 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 really a whole, a whole range. So to move to one of distributive justice, I once heard Professor Amartya Sen share um, this old tale that they found, and you may, you may have heard me share this before, because I, I think about it a lot, that in a village they find a flute. And there are three claims to the flute. The first claim is the person who says, um, I am the only one of the three who will never be able to afford a flute. Right? I should get the flute. The second one says, I made the flute. I made the flute. I should get the flute. And the third one says, I can play the flute for the village better than anyone else ever can or will play the flute. So do we choose the first because the first is the most poor and never be able to afford a flute? Do we choose the second because this is the person who after all made the flute, it's their property? Do we choose the third? Because they could bring the most joy to the community as the person who can play the flute the best. And just in that example, you can see three conflicting idea ideologies around distributive justice and who, who, gets the, who gets the right to the flute. So thank you, Yehuda, for, for, uh, for asking those profound questions. Eric or Steve, either of you want to weigh in? Steve. Um, I'm, I'm kind of strongly adherent to legal justice. I uh, want society to change it if society feels it needs to be changed, but there are so many exceptions to the rule. I think we could become immobilized. I think of the justice that you and, and, and others are referring to as more a person-to-person -person, uh, type of justice where we can modify on the go, but I just don't see how we could live in a system which is constantly making exceptions to the overall legal societal sense of law. Yes. For instance, um, Pam brought up something really great and I loved listening to what you were saying. I thought it was phenomenal. Do we, uh, when, when someone is arrested, do we immediately say, was your family very, very strong and supportive of you, or do we make exceptions because your family was absent? And the end, that's the end of my comment. Right, Steve, yeah, this is a fascinating point. And actually, what we start to get into there are mitigating factors in, in sentencing. Is this a passion crime? If it was a passion crime, the person's going to get a lower sentence than if the person, it was all premeditated, right? Did the, and actually, if we show that a child themselves was abused as a child, and now they're abusing as an adult, they're, they're likely to get a lesser sentence, 
than if this was simply viewed as an act of cruelty rather than as somebody acting upon their own trauma. So there are all these exceptions in, um, in sentencing that emerges in ways that might feel fair or unfair based upon these mitigating factors that people are in. If someone who is rich steals something, how is that sentencing different than someone in desperate poverty who steals something? And so Steve, Steve raises this great point of like, you, how do you maintain a legal system that operates by exceptions, that breaks certain rules or breaks certain precedents in order to um, uh, you know, accommodate different needs? If somebody crosses the border illegally to move to the country because they're already rich and they're here to make a bigger, bigger riches, uh, is that a different case than someone who crosses the border illegally because they're fleeing war or poverty, right? Or is it really the same thing? Right? How do we think about the law when um, there's different factors in people's, in people's lives? If, if a woman was being abused in a marriage and she wanted divorce, should her settlement be different? Um, should, should the settlement be different than if it was simply just, they just didn't enjoy going to the movies together anymore. It wasn't fun anymore. So we're gonna amicably, you know, separate. Nobody did any wrong to anyone. And how do we think? So it's, this is uh, incredibly complicated. And to be fair, Judaism does um, really want us to move at least on the, on the procedural justice front towards an objective place where people are treated by a standard where we don't allow bias to affect this. And yet when we move beyond the procedural realm into the societal realm, um, we see a different reality. One of the reasons we call our social justice work justice is because we're looking to rectify almost a, a cosmic injustice, right? The fact that people are born into poverty is like an injustice in the making up of the world. There's nobody to point to it at fault necessarily, but it's an injustice that we need to rectify. Yeah, Eddie, are you gonna jump in? Yeah, definitely. Uh, what kind of um, is, is honing into me right now, what I'm echoing and what I'm feeling is the difference between uh, equity and equality and uh, how we look at things. Uh, if we try to look at a standpoint from the, the side of equality, then that equality doesn't fit into uh, everybody's mold. Um, but if we look at it, things uh, and we try to base our justice off of an equity stance where our justice is individualized to uh, fit every single person, then we start to look at a society that really starts to flourish when we look at the needs of the individual rather than try to fit everybody into the needs of, of, of the, an, an equality standpoint. Does it not start to become subjective rather than objective, though, and <laughs> whose opinion of this not not factor in okay great great so let's go to eddie's point and then michael's point and then we'll call it a day um so to start with eddie's um eddie's point about um equality versus equity here this is really an important comment and and i think part of what emerges there is the issue of proximity in equality you don't need any proximity or relationship you just have to say everybody should get the same stuff Everybody should get the same stuff. I don't care who you are or who you are or what your claim is, what a claim is. Everyone should get the same stuff, right? E equity means you have to actually know what someone needs. You have to actually know what someone is demands and what, and, and, and what their situation is. Equity means you have to actually listen to them. And so equity puts a different challenge upon society than equality. And so how do you do that in, with, um, while being proximate um, by being in relationship and trusting vulnerable groups in their claims towards, ultimately towards, uh, towards equity. Um, so that's really, 
that's really difficult. That's really difficult. And, and, and part of the difficulty goes into Michael's uh, point there around subjectivity. Now, um, I don't believe in the false binary of objectivity versus subjectivity. I think in modernity with Immanuel Kant, he, he showed us that all objective data, all objective stimuli pass through the subjectivity of the mind, which is to say that no human being can access objective truth, objective data. Everything is filtered through our genes, our experience, our early childhood realities, through our own memories, our own cognitive system, right? All objectivity passes through our own subjectivity. However, I'm not a moral relativist where I claim that because all objectivity passes through the subjective filter, that we should abandon any claim or pursuit of truth or any attempt to have objective systems in place. And so that is the challenge, friends, of how to balance that objective and subjective, that equality and that equity, that individual case exception versus a universal standard. And we're gonna see this framework. If you look at any justice challenge we look at today in society, we are gonna see the exact tension we're looking at today. This case of equity versus prioritizing the most vulnerable or equality versus that. And that comes up time and time again in each case and depending on how you frame each case, right? On the one hand, a, a pro, uh, not to go back to other cases, but a, a pro-choice advocate is gonna say, this mother is incredibly vulnerable. Why don't we allow her as the most vulnerable party to make a choice? A pro-life advocate is gonna say, the fetus is the most vulnerable party. They can't even advocate for themselves, right? They should be given choice, right? And if you look at a bunch of different cases, both sides are making the argument around who is most vulnerable in such a case, right? Police officers, those who are, are, are Blue Lives Matter say the police are most vulnerable. They're going out there and defending themselves in vicious places. We should stand behind them. They're so vulnerable, these police officers. Right? And then people who are, are advocating at the center of the Black Lives Matter and, 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 and in an anti-cop place says, these Black people are the, most, are the most vulnerable. These cops are coming in, there's brutality, they can't even defend themselves. And so if you look at all sides of these political arguments that emerge, most sides are arguing most vulnerable, right, in different ways. So friends, as we see, Judaism is very rich on this topic, and we've only begun to scratch the surface. I, um, I, I invite you next week to join us back for number 24, our topic next, next week is judging others favorably versus judging for justice. Should we judge others because we need to to create a just society or should we judge all others favorably? Wishing you all a wonderful day. Thank you for joining. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.